Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Correct. The Way is back today. We're back in The Way, and we're going to be here for the next six weeks um, as we make our way towards Easter. And so if you're uh, one of these people who likes to prepare or you want to know where we're going, this is an easy one. You put your uh, finger or the ribbon in your Bible or uh, your bookmark on your app or whatever you do, put that in Luke uh, 22, and you will just slowly be moving that forward in the weeks to come as we make our way from where we'll be today in Luke 22 and the Passover all the way through resurrection and uh, Jesus a resurrected Jesus appearing to his followers. And, and so we're going to unpack that week to week as we finish this series. And uh, like I said, today we're going to be with Jesus and his disciples at Passover. Passover is a ceremonial meal that would be eaten uh, to retell and to kind of uh, memorialize the Exodus story of God's people when they were enslaved in Israel and how, or enslaved in Egypt and how he brought them out, uh, how he conquered the Egyptians, how he opened the Red Sea, how he brought them to the Promised Land. The Passover meal is this sort of uh, ceremonial retelling. It's a, it's a good meal that's a good excuse to tell a good story. We have some meals like that. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but that's, that's what Thanksgiving is for us. Right? Thanksgiving is sort of a national meal to um, have good food that is tied to something back in the past that we nationally would remember that is part of a story we retell. It's why your children and grandchildren come home from school every year with the turkey they make using their handprint and that, that whole thing. Why? Because we're telling a story. And Thanksgiving dinner, Thanksgiving meal is just an excuse to keep a story alive and continue to tell a story. And in some sense, that's what Passover is. It, it's, a, it's a thing that God has set up for his people so they can continue to tell the story of his goodness. Do you have any meals like that other than Thanksgiving? Do you have any meals like that or any times like that where you memorialize something? Maybe an anniversary? That's kind of what that is, right? You go to an anniversary dinner with your spouse and you think about, you talk about how we met. That's maybe one of those. We have one in our house that we just started in the last couple of years. In the middle of July, in the summer, we talk about God's hand in moving us here. This is our family story didn't start in uh, the frozen swamp of Northwest Ohio. Our family story started 1,400 miles away. And so uh, even this last summer, we got our kids together and we said, okay, we're going to have like a meal. We're going to make good food and we're going to talk about what God did to bring us here. And so we start with the beginning of that, and we talk about, you know, what wedged us out of where we were, and then we talk about how we came on our, uh, our like, interview weekend, and we flew up from sunny, warm South Texas, and it snowed in mid-May while we were interviewing, and the local people said, oh, I'm so sorry, it doesn't usually do this, and we're like, this is fantastic, we haven't seen snow in 20 years. And we talk about God's hand in leaving us as the only candidate, when there were three candidates at as we were doing our interviews and, and then kind of by God's hand over the next week, there was one candidate and it was just me and I'd only sent one resume. So that worked out pretty well. And we kind of talk about like, what was God doing in that moment? And there was pain involved. We talk about the pain of leaving friends or family and how we're far away from grandma and grandpa. And we talk about some of the pain there. We talk about the pain of leaving the old church, which was the only church my kids had ever known. We got married there and kids were baptized or, or dedicated there. And it was a whole thing. Uh, we talk about the pain of the last day at church, which you may have heard the story, and if you haven't, I'll tell you another day. Um, but on our last day at church, 
I preached and Steph led worship and five hours later there were 18 fire trucks there and the church burned and then it was over and then we moved hey guys um so I'll tell that story another day but that's what the church looked like and so we tell the story of Bella who at the time was seven sweet seven-year-old Bella on our last day at church, after our last service, after everybody had done all the crying they needed to do, she went through the 1,003 chairs inside the sanctuary, and she said, I just want to say a prayer. I want to touch each chair and pray for the people. We're like, what kind of seven-year-old wants to do that? And she got partially through it, and it was just like, look, we got to go. This is, like, taking forever. So we let, and Steph said, I'll take you back tomorrow. I'll bring you back. We're not leaving today. I'll bring you back. You can finish praying for everybody and touching all the chairs. It'll be fine. And that's what the chairs look like the next day. So she never went back. And there's a whole thing. So we tell that story. And that might be her favorite part of the story because it's some little piece of her. And that's the thing. When we tell old stories, again, when we recount the old details of things that have happened, we, we remember our favorite parts. And they become more special to us. And we sometimes say, hey, tell that part again or, or, or get to the part that I like. You do that with favorite movies or television shows. You re-watch the same thing over and over. I heard that The Office was watched, 93 billion hours of The Office was watched last year on Netflix. What? And it's not new. It's old. And it's just people re-watching something they've already seen because it's familiar and they like it and they notice new things and they laugh at new things and they remember their old favorite things, but then I never even noticed this part of it. And it happens with songs. Why does everybody listen to the music that was popular when they were 16 to 25 for the rest of their life? Because it evokes something in you. It brings you back to a place. It retells a story. And that's what is happening in Passover. The best stories grow in power as our perspective grows over time. And Passover is really the greatest story ever told. It's, it's this incredible story of God's beloved people and how he's rescuing them from oppression. And it's this beautiful tale. It's true, and it's incredible, and the people pass it down. It's like this gift that one generation gives to the next. Never forget what God did for our people. That's the whole point of the Passover. So people get together, and they still do. They drink wine, and they eat unleavened bread, because as the story goes, when it was time to get out of Egypt, they did not have time to allow the bread to rise. So God said, take the unleavened bread with you. Just take it as it is. Don't wait for it to rise. Get out. And so thousands of years later, people still gather around tables and eat flat unleavened bread to remember that when it came time for their rescue, there was no time to wait. You couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. There's all these beautiful little moments in every story. There's these beautiful little things we try to remember, and there's the symbolism everywhere. So Jesus is with his disciples at the Passover meal, and yet he's not going to look back. He's going to do a new thing. He's updating the central point of their faith. He's taking this most precious thing. He's looking at it with his friends, and he goes, you thought it was about this, and it's maybe still a little about this, but it's about a whole new thing. We're going to pick up the story in Luke 22. It says, when it was time... He, Jesus, sat down, all the apostles with him, and he said, You've no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. It, it's the last one I'll eat until we all eat it together in the kingdom of God. And so taking the cup, he blessed it, and he said, Take this and pass it among you. As for me, I'll not drink wine again until the kingdom of God arrives. And then taking the bread, he blessed it and broke it. 
And he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat it in my memory. And he did the same with the cup after supper. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. Blood poured out for you. He, he's beginning to create symbolism where there's always been symbolism. He's beginning to update as he goes. This is, I would argue, this, this meal is the pivot point of history itself. And I say, if you want to go back and you want to look Luke 19, the triumphal entry, to Luke 24, where Jesus is resurrected, if you want to read those five chapters, I would say that's the pivot point. The hinge of history rests in those five chapters of the Bible. This is a short burst of activity amongst a handful of Jewish men and women, not famous, no great status, no incredible education, gathered in an upper room, in dusty old Jerusalem, no Times Square billboards, no skyscrapers, no Teslas, no TikTok, no smartwatch. And they're doing this in the grind of a difficult life under Roman occupation in the mundane celebration of an ancient deliverance. And in there, in the midst of that, in that context, we see the hinge of history. We see this pivot point on which all eternity swings. Why? Because what did we say Passover was? Passover is a remembrance of past deliverance. It's always been that. Passover is a remembrance of past deliverance. Look back and remember, look back and remember. The stories all look back and remember. At what? At the original Passover when we were enslaved in Egypt. Jesus says, eat and remember, eat and remember, drink and remember. A past event? No. Jesus says, drink and remember, and he's speaking not of a past event anymore. He's speaking of a future happening. So the Last Supper is the moment when deliverance shifts for being a fact from the past to a promise for the future. This is mind-blowing that Jesus takes what has always been a moment that points to a past deliverance, and he takes it and he flips it on its head and he says, this moment will forever now be known as a promise for the future. What was past will be future. What was old will be new. And Jesus does it in their midst. All the language has shifted. Notice, the language shifts. The Passover meal is all about what was, and Jesus starts talking about what will be. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what you will do in the future when you drink of this, when you eat of this. It's no longer a story of God's people rooted in their momentary release from slavery way back then. Instead, that story has been uprooted and rerooted in the eternal rescue from slavery for all of God's people. So Passover is a meal of, of remembrance that Jesus then takes and twists and pivots and creates a future remembrance if that even is possible. It's a paradox. He creates a future remembrance. He says, remember me later. My body will be the new sacrifice. My blood is the new promise that you inherit. Jesus is a new Passover in and of himself. Jesus is the true and better Passover in their midst. So when we talk about the bread and we talk about the cup, when we talk about the wine, when we talk about these things, we're talking about the future promise of Jesus that's been fulfilled. It's no longer just a remembrance of Israel escaping slavery in Egypt. It's now about our own escape from the eternal slavery of sin and death. We don't talk about when we take the bread and the cup as they did in that Passover upper room. We don't talk about God's people crossing the Red Sea. We talk about the blood red cross that broke the chains of our sin. 
We don't talk about the new land that God's people were going to enter. We talk about the tomb that opened up to make God's people new. Everything that was has been updated. Everything, it's like you ever get an update on your phone and it changes everything. You don't know how to use it anymore. You take that thing out and it's like, oh, you're upgraded to 15.06. And then you, like, where's the button? I don't, how do I send a message? How do I answer this? It's done. You just throw it in the river. It's done. I don't know. Get a new phone. This is what we do because sometimes the update comes, the install comes, and we don't even know where we're going now. We don't know what's happening. This is what's happening to them in real time, except it's not a phone in their pocket. It's all of life and meaning. It's everything they've ever known about religion. It's everything they're ever going to experience in the kingdom of heaven. And the update is happening in real time. This is not a future promise to a nation. It's about a promise fulfilled for all creation. It's something is happening. So we pick up the story in verse 24. What do the disciples do with this? Within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. I don't know how to use this new phone. Anyway, I'm better than you. Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Who would you rather be, Jesus says? The one who eats dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat the dinner and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves, and you've stuck with me through thick and thin, and so now I confer upon you the royal authority my father conferred upon me, so you can eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and be strengthened as you take up responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. Jesus is handing out new assignments. He's delivered the update. Hey, everything's different. We're going from past to future. We are updating this as we go. And as we do it, Beware, because the instinct in you is to want to be the greatest. The instinct in you is to want to be the leader. The instinct in you is to be strong and powerful and dominate. And if you've seen anything, Jesus says, you've seen what I did, which is the exact opposite. The pulse in the room is quickening, though. You have to imagine back in this room, the Messiah is doing Messiah things. The Messiah is saying Messiah things. There has to be some shred of doubt in all of the disciples as they follow this Jesus around who's claiming to be the Messiah. When will he get to doing the Messiah things? We've seen some healing. That's cool, but other people do healing. I wonder, I mean, is it real? It's real, right? It's real. And they're talking about this on the road with each other. Is it real? Are you sure? Thomas is over there doubting. He's chirping at him. And they, well, I don't know. Let's find out. And now Jesus in this moment they feel the epic nature of what's happening amongst them. The Messiah is saying Messiah things. And they must be looking at each other going, we were right all along. It is him. We were right. And they're replaying conversations they've had with their skeptical friends and family who are going, you're going with what? You're going to follow the vagabond from Nazareth? He's the Messiah? Oh, gosh. All their families thought they got swept up in a cult. Some of you have families who don't know what you're doing as a Christian. Must have gotten swept up in a cult. I don't know what she believes. I don't know what he believes. Some of the Jesus character. That's not different than what they were going through. And in this moment, they're starting to feel the lift of going, wait a minute. Hope is new again. Jesus is talking about the kingdom again. Something is happening again. But the disciples are human and they do what humans do is they start arguing about positions and they start ordering themselves for like a, a, an org chart within the new kingdom. Who gets the, the benefits? Who gets the privileges? Who will be the greatest? Who's going to be in charge? Who's the leader? So Jesus says, I've given you new assignments. Responsibilities among the congregation 
of God's people. I love that line. Followers of Christ, we have responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. That doesn't mean this congregation, although we're one of them. It means the congregation of God's people. We have responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. We are here. We exist to serve. We are rescued from slavery so as to become servants. We think we're rescued from slavery so as to become tyrants sometimes. We think we're rescued from slavery so as to become kings. And Jesus says, you're rescued from slavery so as to become servants. Which is actually still echoed in the the, the leadership material that people are putting out today. In the modern leadership world, people are still chasing this idea of servant leadership. One of the most popular kind of leadership guru, writers, researchers out there is Simon Sinek. He wrote a book, Start With Why, who he's most famous for. He said this in a book, Leaders Eat Last. He said, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. I don't think this is a gender-specific comment. You can easily judge the character of a woman by how she treats those who could do nothing for her. His book is called Leaders Eat Last, which sounds strangely familiar to what Jesus was just saying at the Last Supper. This is still something our culture, somewhere inside of us, we get this. We get that the people who are really leading are the ones who are at the bottom serving. And we get that because Jesus is real and Jesus is eternal and Jesus is hidden in our hearts. And somewhere in us, we're like, something about that feels right. And when we're led by somebody like that, we go, that feels right. That's the kind of leader I want. And the challenge for us is when we, we get power and we no longer lead like servants because we got power. When we're low on the totem pole, we want the leader to act like a servant. When we're high on the totem pole, we forget. Jesus' kingdom is not about what you can gain. You've gained it all already in him. So now Jesus is saying the new assignment is how do you give away your life to people who, from whom you stand to gain nothing? Marine Corps Lieutenant General George Flynn said it another way. He said, the cost of leadership is self-interest. Business world gets it. The military world gets it. The cost of leadership, this is what Jesus is saying, the cost of leadership is your self-interest. You are no longer allowed as a leader to be self-interested because you're now responsible for someone else. You now, you, your agenda is them. Your agenda is those you lead. And how do you do that? You serve. So you want to lead like Jesus. Jesus is saying, you want, to, you want to lead in my kingdom? Great. Awesome. I love it. Move to the back of the line. It's not about you anymore. You exist to serve, to sacrifice, to love people with your every bit of your being. And, okay, that sounds fine. Jesus then gives a warning, specifically to Simon Peter, but that I think it applies to us. Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, stay on your toes. Satan has tried his best to separate all of you from me, like chaff from wheat. Simon, I've prayed for you in particular that you not give in or give out. When you have come through the time of testing, turn to your companions and give them a fresh start. And Peter said, Master, I'm ready for anything with you. I'd go to jail for you. I'd die for you. And Jesus said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Peter. But before the rooster crows, you will have three times denied that you even know me. We're going to talk all about that next week. For this week, what you need to see is, is Peter's being held up as this important leader. And Jesus tells him in no uncertain terms that there is an enemy and there will be trials. There is an enemy and he's gunning for you. 
So if you long to be a leader, if you long to serve God's people, if you long to be a member of the kingdom of heaven who's making a difference and pushing it forward, if you long for that, you better be ready because there's something else that's coming to push back. If Jesus came to be the bridge between God and man to redeem and reunify creation, then we have an enemy whose chief aim is to burn the bridge down, set fire to the bridge, and walk away. Meaning that there is a fight to be had. He says, stay on your toes. This whole meal, this Passover meal for them has been future-focused. He's future-focused in all these things. And he says, and yet you have a present enemy. The future is what you're aiming for, but you have a present enemy who doesn't want you to get there. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the four Ds, these lures of the enemy. You can go back and listen to it. We'll post it again this week if you want to see it. Distraction and dilution and diversion and delusion. And these were these four things that come to grab each and every one of us. These are the, the, the ways that the enemy will come and just steal your day. I didn't even realize I was into that. I didn't even realize I believed that. I didn't even realize. Most of them are I didn't even realize kind of things. Because what does Jesus say that the, the idea the enemy has? The, the enemy isn't here to destroy you in a blaze of glory, although he'd really like that. The enemy is here to subtly burn the bridge, to subtly separate you from Christ, to let you think you're doing it great, to let you think you're on the right path, and then you look up and you go, wait a minute, how did I end up here? The enemy exists to steal from us the upstream life that Jesus has called us to and to throw us back into a mainstream life where we're more comfortable, where our neighbors don't think we're odd, or we have more time on our hands because Sunday morning brunch is awesome. And Jesus is saying, there are forces working. There is an enemy. And he'll come in distraction and dilution and diversion and delusion. But do we even call it what it is? These are lies from the enemy. The same enemy that existed in Genesis 3 who told Adam and Eve that you can be like God, is the same enemy that existed in John 10 when Jesus said he's here to kill, steal, and destroy, is the same enemy that Jesus mentions here that exists today among us, whose chief aim is to separate us from God, to create doubt and denial, to take our future focus and get it all lost in present struggle. And so what we need to do is learn how to speak openly about that enemy. We're not good at this because we're modern, rational people. And if you can't see it, it must not be real, and you shouldn't talk about it because people look at you funny. So we don't say Jesus very much, and we don't say God very much. We say faith a lot and spirituality. We like those words because, I mean, there's lots of faiths, and I'm a spiritual person. I'm not a Christian. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not a, I don't, I don't know about faith, I mean, faith, trust, you know, it's not just words. You know, I, I, follow, I follow Jesus, though. He's a good teacher. No, I agree. He's a good teacher. We do a lot of that stuff, we him and all, because we're a little bit afraid, because if you can't see it and touch it and hold it, and, and you can't post it on TikTok, then what are you going to do with it? How do, how do you know if it's real? We don't do that with the enemy either, do we? That's like next level weird. Your neighbor comes over and says they got moles in their yard or something, and be like, oh man, the enemy's after you. They'd be like, who is, does he live on the street? It's Chuck, right? And you're like, ah, Chuck. Because woodchuck and mold, it's the whole thing. Um, <laughs> we don't talk about an enemy. Why? Because you would be branded a weirdo. And so we hush, ah, I think that's kind of the enemy. We need to, we, look, we need to take 
what Jesus says is true and either believe it or don't believe it. We need to take what Jesus says is true and either believe it and then act like we believe it or admit that we don't believe it and say, God, help me in my unbelief. If Jesus says there is an eternal spiritual war happening now, that there is an enemy who is lurking to steal, kill, and destroy, that we have the power to oppose this enemy in prayer by petitioning God the Father through the Spirit to come and protect us, to come and vanquish that enemy in our midst. That's what Jesus says is real. So we either have to say that's real and I believe it and I got to act like it, or I got to admit that I don't believe that yet and I got to say, Jesus, help me in my unbelief. Because I like the part about salvation, but I feel a little funny talking about the enemy. Church, we need to learn how to talk about the enemy. And we need to learn how to say that's a lie of the enemy. When people come in my office and they say, well, this is true of me or this happened or this went wrong or this has happened, I say, that's a lie of the enemy. And it all, people... Spines go straight when you say that. What do you mean? Who, Chuck again? No, not Chuck. You know, you gotta like, enemy. There is a reason that you face opposition. There is a reason that you feel that separation. There's a reason you feel the tug. There's a reason that culture goes the way culture goes and says, yeah, but maybe you just wanna come a little further this way. Maybe dig into this little sub thing a little bit. Maybe get lost. Maybe lose the mission in the method. Maybe lose the mission in this great little ministry. Maybe forget what's really happening. Maybe little, tiny, little enemy things. And we need to be able to say that's a lie of the enemy. So I'm going to let you practice right now. I just like you on three. I'm just going to, you just say that's a lie of the enemy. I don't even know what you're going to say. Ground moles. Ready? On three. One, two, three. Was that hard? Someone just twitched. Like, I don't know. Someone, a new person walked in right when we said that, and they turned around and they walked right out. <laughs> like, woo, it's one of those churches. You need to learn to say, that's a lie of the enemy, to yourself and to those you love. You need to learn how to bless yourself with that truth and to bless your friends with that truth. God couldn't love me if he knew what I'd done. Lie. I'm not worthy of love anymore. That's a lie. My sin is too much for God to accept me. That's a lie. I can't overcome this trial. Lie. I won't ever feel love again. Lie. I've run out of mercy. Lie. I've outrun God's grace. Lie. I've been beaten by this sin or this habit or this predicament or this thought pattern. Lie. 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 We need to learn how to say that's a lie of the enemy who the Bible calls the father of lies. What opposes truth? The enemy. What is the tool of the enemy? Lies. And we are so uncomfortable saying that that we end up just believing them and going with them because it's easier for us to be like, oh, I don't know, than it is to call it a lie. I don't think God wants my marriage to succeed. Lie. I don't think this community would accept me if they knew the things I'd done or the things I think or the things I watch or the things. Lie. That's a lie of the enemy. In fact, when we oppose an enemy, we have to do it on the grounds and the foundation of what's true. Because if you just say it out of your own power, you're all of a sudden you're just going to be shooting demons out of the sky and you've got nothing backing you up. That doesn't work either. We do it on the foundation of what's true. And so are we victorious? Yes. Are we conquerors? Yes. How do we know it? Romans 8. Who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ. What was the enemy's goal? To separate us. So Romans says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the lies of the enemy separate us from Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we will face death all day long. We will be considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. That's what we stand on. So Jesus looks at his followers and he goes, there is an enemy who is coming to separate you. And we have to stand on the truth that nothing can separate us. That those of us who find ourselves rooted in Christ are inseparable from him. And so when something feels like it's separating us, guess what? Follow the trail, find the lie, call it out, speak truth, keep moving. Jesus tells Peter and tells you the enemy is coming to separate. And so what do we do? We do with what we started this whole sermon on today. You begin to retell yourself the story. Why do they go and retell the Passover story all the time? Because they're wondering, I mean, is this all there is? I mean, is God even here? Does God save anymore? And the Jews would have to retell themselves the story because, yes, don't forget. Don't forget the Red Sea. Don't forget. Don't forget what God did. Don't forget the Passover. So they would retell the story. So maybe what you need to do is retell the story of your own salvation. Retell the story of where you were, of who you were, of what you were up to, of what you were into, of where God found you. Retell the story of the ditch you were in. Maybe have your own personal Passover moment. Maybe some of you should have a meal this week. And I'm not joking. Maybe you should set up a meal where you do nothing but everyone gets a chance to tell their own personal Passover story where four of you, some friends or a family or a community group gets together and you just go, what we're going to do is we're just going to retell God's grace in our life. We're going to tell God's story. Why? Because that's the whole point. Is when you talk about the truth of what is, it eliminates the lie and the separating force of the enemy because he can't compete. We need to lean in to Jesus because in him is victory. In him, we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors. In him we are saved, in him we are free. He is our personal Passover. His love stood down death. His love crushed the devil's head, and our enemy is a liar, and he's running out of breath. So we need to learn how to tell the story of life, to live in the story of life, to call an enemy an enemy, call a spade a spade, and be the followers of Jesus who won't be slowed down, and won't be separated by the lies of the enemy. Amen? Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.